Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's 7 a.m. in Singapore, 5 p.m. in Mexico City, and 6 p.m. right here in New York. I'm Paula Newton in for Julia Chatterley, and wherever you are in the world, this is your first move. And a very warm welcome to First Move. Here's what you need to know. Sweden's path is cleared to join NATO as Hungary approves its bid to join the alliance. Ukraine's President Zelensky tells CNN that millions will die if the U.S. doesn't pass a new aid package. One of the world's biggest cities may be just months away from running out of water. It feels amazing to beat my first grandmother. And we speak to the chess prodigy who made history as the youngest person ever, get this, to defeat a grand master. That conversation coming up. But first, as we mentioned, Sweden clearing the final hurdle now to join NATO as Hungary's parliament approves the Nordic nation's bid. With Sweden's ascension, NATO will grow to a 32-member alliance. Meanwhile, France is hosting representatives from about two dozen nations to discuss aid for Ukraine. On Monday, Ukrainian forces retreated from a village in the eastern Donetsk region as Russia intensifies its attacks and continues to push ever further west. Now, in an interview with CNN, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky warned millions of people could die if the U.S. doesn't send more aid. Listen. Success forward will depend on USA, yes. Not defending line, not only defending line. Because if you defend, just defend, you give possibility to Russia, push you, yes, small steps back. But any, anyway, you, we will have these steps back, small one. But when you step back, you lose people. We will lose people. In fact, he says they will lose millions. General Mark Hurdling joins us now. He's a military analyst and a former commanding general of the U.S. Army in Europe and the 7th Army. I really am happy to see you on the show today as we try and parse everything that's happened. I want you first, if you could, take us to that battlefield in Ukraine. I mean, what do you see right now? Because it seems, you know, we just heard President Zelensky. He's referring to something far worse than a stalemate here. He is, Paula, and I think it's important to note that what we're seeing is Ukrainian withdrawal from key cities 
that they have been defending for the last six months. Uh, I could name those cities, that doesn't make a difference. Avika is the one that's been in the news the most, but there are others. Uh, and they have been defending those cities, creating a, a great deal of casualties on the Russian side, uh, by all accounts from both uh, open source resources and from friends I've talked to, the Russians have taken a real beating uh, in, in attempting to continue to attack those defenses. But without artillery rounds, which uh, President Zelensky said yesterday is of, is of his primary concern, at this phase of the fight, there are gonna be challenges to the Ukrainian army. So they have pulled back to new defensive positions. And I think uh, that that will open the Russian uh, forces up for attempting to conduct maneuvers, which they have not shown themselves to be very proficient at. Ukraine has been much better on the defense uh, if they get to those prepared defensive positions and can halt uh, further Russian maneuvers, I think we will see uh, additional stalemates, let's put it that way, on the front lines. All of this is challenging. There's going to be attempts at moving forces around to, to on both sides, Ukraine and Russian side, in that Western fight. And that's going to uh, place some difficulties on the Southern fight in Zaporizhia province along the Dnieper River. Uh, going toward what uh, Russia wanted as one of their strategic objectives from the very beginning of controlling all of the Black Sea ports. So all of this is part of the big chess game that any kind of combat and operational environment sees. In the midst of all this, uh, we still have this U.S. aid package stuck on Capitol Hill. Now, you argue, you could argue, I would say, that even if a Ukraine aid bill gets passed this hour, they've still already doomed Ukraine to short-term losses. But, but what would happen in your estimation if it doesn't pass at all? Yeah, it's what I've been talking about for a very long time, last, for the last four months, basically. When you see that kind of supply chain interrupted on the battlefield, and I've experienced that uh, in, in combat, when you see a supply chain interrupted, it puts all sorts of momentum at risk. Uh, and and uh, having been interrupted now for almost four months and having the president of the country, President Zelensky, saying they are in dire straits right now, and we are seeing the effects of that, even if it was approved tomorrow, as you just said, or today, uh, it would still take weeks to get some of those critical pieces of equipment to the front line of Ukraine. So the, the requirement to pull back, as, as I just mentioned, is, is important. It allows the, the Ukrainians to get into new defensive positions. But again, it's going to take uh, days, if not weeks, to get new equipment, new supplies, new arms to the Ukrainian army so they can uh, regain the fight against the Russians. Yes, certainly there will be tough months ahead, no doubt. Uh, this one statement, right? Sweden is now part of NATO, such a watershed for the alliance in Europe. I mean, given your former command, I, I can't imagine how, it really is incredible that this happened in a matter of two years, likely for good reason as far as the alliance is concerned. But if that USAID does get to, doesn't get to Ukraine, what if what Donald Trump, the former president, continues to threaten NATO allies? I want you to listen now to Poland's foreign minister speaking to Fareed Zakaria on the weekend. Listen. If America's uh, credibility were shaken, if um, countries, not just in Europe, also in the Far East, started to think that perhaps the US president can't deliver even when he wants to help your ally, much of that would be lost. 
So, you know, we can feel it, we hear it, right? Isolation, isolationism is running hot with U.S. voters right now. How to overcome that? Yeah, well, there's, there's a balancing point here too, Paul, you have to consider. You know, in, in, in the past two years, various NATO countries have been giving their resources to Ukraine to help them on the battlefield. They have been taking risk in doing so, mostly from stockage on the shelves, not taking it from uh, most of their active forces, but some have come from active forces. If you see the potential for the United States not contributing help and the European nations like Poland, like others, who will say, uh-oh, we may face a Russian onslaught after uh, they're finished with Ukraine, so we've got to beef up our defenses. It then puts NATO at a higher risk because those countries are not going to take the risk in giving excessive amounts of equipment to Ukraine because they know they're going to need it. You're showing a map of, of NATO right now, and it's fascinating to see how uh, Sweden, Norway, Finland are all now part. That, that was an area that when I was in command in Europe, we used to call the Nords, and all of those were independent. And when you take a really close look and compare where the Nordic countries are and where the Baltic states are, you also see a very small piece of land on the eastern side of NATO called Kaliningrad. That is a Russian military base on the western side of NATO, uh, on the other side of the Baltic countries. They are right on the Baltic Lake, uh, what is now being called a NATO Lake. And we have all, were always concerned about the potential for something called the Solinsky Gap to collapse and the Russian try, Russians trying to go from Belarus to that small little enclave of Kaliningrad. You know, we're going to see more dynamics, uh, more churn in this area if Ukraine isn't given the capability of further defending themselves against this Russian expansionism and onslaught. And that is the kind of warning, uh, you, you know, you've been sounding now for months and months. General Mark Hurdling, thank you. Really appreciate it. Now, CNN's full interview with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky will air in a few hours on The Source with Caitlin Collins. That's at 9 p.m. in New York, 10 a.m. Hong Kong time. Here in the United States, President Joe Biden says he's hoping for a ceasefire in Gaza by next Monday. He talked to reporters at an ice cream shop right here in New York just moments ago. Listen. Can you give us a sense of when you think that ceasefire will start, sir? Well, I hope by the beginning of the weekend. I mean, the end of the weekend. At least my, my, my national security advisor tells me that we're close. We're close. It's not done yet. And my hope is by next Monday, we'll have a ceasefire. Meanwhile, a major shakeup in the West Bank as the Palestinian Authority's prime minister and his entire government resign. It comes after the U.S. put the government under huge pressure to reform and replace career politicians. A former World Bank executive is expected to become the next prime minister. And in Washington, really a shocking protest. An active duty member of the U.S. Air Force died after setting himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy. The 25-year-old airman from Texas said, quote, I will no longer be complicit in genocide. To Gaza now, where people are in desperate need of humanitarian aid, especially food. Jeremy Diamond now will show us why. Today, Gaza's humanitarian crisis looks like this. Palestinians desperate for food, paddling and swimming out to sea after at least one plane airdropping aid appeared to miss its target. 
sending pallets of food crashing into the sea. In central and southern Gaza, hundreds crowding the beaches to try and secure their piece of the rations. But this is the other side of desperation. Groups of men wielding whips and bats, steering crowds away from their precious cargo. Months of hunger and war triggering fights for survival when there is not enough for everyone. This is what they are fighting over. Ration packs, a lifeline for the lucky few. I was lucky and able to get one of these aids. But what about all those other people who were not able to get this aid? Look, this one didn't get any, and this one didn't get any. But so much more is needed. I'm asking from the Arab nations. We are thankful for the aid through the parachutes, but we need more, and we need it distributed in a better way. This will not stop our hunger. We don't need a capsule. Because when we eat this, we will eat it. And that's it. It's finished. But nowhere are people more desperate for food aid than in northern Gaza, where women and children wait in long lines for what now passes for food, a cloudy soup mixture made with dirty water and whatever grains can be found. There was no food or drinking water, no flour or anything. There was no cooking oil, not even drinking water. Death is better than this. Humanitarian aid deliveries this month dropped by half compared to January, according to a United Nations relief agency, which blamed Israeli military operations and the collapse of civil order in Gaza. In northern Gaza, aid groups suspending aid delivery amid looting and attacks on aid trucks, leaving many with few options to stay alive. Look, we are eating animal feed against our will, but have to eat it. Without food or clean water, their voices are all they have left. The suffering of Gaza is extremely difficult. Where are the authorities? Where is the government? Israel made us hungry and our government made us hungry and people are stealing. Shame on you Arabs, where are you? But after nearly five months of war, is the world listening? Jeremy Diamond, CNN, Tel Aviv. Now to new claims that Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny was set to be part of a prisoner swap before his death. A Western official tells CNN that early discussions were underway for an exchange involving Navalny and U.S. citizens. Navalny's aides said a decision had been made while he was still alive, but a Kremlin spokesperson denies knowing anything about such an agreement. Navalny died suddenly, of course, on February 16th, and as Matthew Chance reports, his loss is being profoundly felt by so many in Russia. Mourners still paying their respects at makeshift memorials across Russia. But now, another unexpected twist in Alexei Navalny's tragic saga. According to his close aide, negotiations for the release of the Russian opposition leader were reaching a conclusion. He was poised to be swapped, say his team before he suddenly died. Navalny should have been free in the coming days because we achieved a decision on his exchange. I received confirmation that negotiations were underway and were at the final stage on the evening of February 15th. On February 16th, Alexei was killed. The Kremlin tells CNN it has no knowledge of any deal and had nothing to do with his death. 
But Navalny's team insists the Russian opposition figure was killed to prevent him from being swapped. You can see Evan Gershkovich is in there. Hi, Matthew from CNN. Swapped along with US citizens in Russian jails, like Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, accused of espionage. Former US Marine Paul Whelan, serving 16 years for spying. I am innocent of any charge. The US says both are unlawfully detained and has been negotiating for their release, including early talks on Navalny, one Western official tells CNN. But the Kremlin has regularly hinted it wants back this man, a former FSB agent, Vadim Krasikov, serving a life sentence in Germany for killing a Chechen dissident. Navalny's team accuses the Kremlin of simply taking the opposition leader off the negotiating table by killing him. Allegations the Kremlin denies. It was clearly communicated to Putin that the only way to get Krasikov is to exchange him for Navalny. Hold on, thought Putin. I can't tolerate Navalny being free. And since they're willing to exchange Krasikov in principle, then I just need to get rid of the bargaining chip. No person, in other words, no problem. The kind of ruthlessness that saw Alexei Navalny poisoned with the nerve agent Novichok in 2020. Recovering only to be arrested and imprisoned on his return to Russia the following year. After news of his unexplained death, hundreds of mourners were detained while laying flowers. Now Navalny's team says a public farewell a potential flashpoint will be held at the end of this week. In death, as in life, it seems, Alexei Navalny continues to challenge the Kremlin's power. Matthew Chance, CNN Moscow. Back here in the U.S. now, the Supreme Court on Monday heard arguments in two cases that could affect the content you and I see online. At issue is whether social media platforms are allowed to moderate and key here, remove posts they deem inappropriate and harmful, or whether they should act merely as a public square and stay out of the content regulation business. Now, the Supreme Court heard two separate cases brought by Texas and Florida. Those states have enacted laws that are designed to keep social media platforms from blocking conservative views. The justice's decisions will have serious First Amendment implications and could impact, in fact, the upcoming U.S. presidential election. Lance Olenoff is the U.S. editor-in-chief at Tech Radar, and I want to thank you for joining us. It was really interesting at the Supreme Court today as we heard those justices probing um, the lawyers there before them. This ruling or something like it is probably a long time in coming. Whichever way they rule, what's at stake given the tidal wave of content that come our way each and every day? Right. Well, this is a really tough situation for social media platforms because they have an unimaginable amount of content dropped on all of those, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and YouTube every single day. And a lot of the moderation that you see is actually automated. There's so much garbage content, basically, that we don't see because of the automation. But then they have regular people uh, moderating it as well. But the question is whether or not states can say, no, no, you can't take that down unless you talk to us, unless you explain yourself first. So imagine moderation capabilities taken out of the hands of social media, slowed down. To my mind, what that means is the potential that these platforms could be filled with a lot of objectionable 
objectionable content. Uh, and this all goes back to the decision that these platforms made, you know, back in 2020 when they removed the former president from some of their platforms because of what was happening around the Capitol. And they were worried that he was just amping them up. Yeah, it, it really is an interesting case, especially when you say that it's automated. People wonder without that moderation and, and any measure what gets amplified on these platforms. I really like the analogy, in fact, that you've used. You, you said it would be like a water plant that can't purify its water without explaining how and why it's purifying everything. Can, can you explain that a little bit further? Yeah, I mean, look, it's you know, ultimately... You know, there's always been a question about whether or not social media platforms are publishers or utilities. They're not exactly publishers because they're never creating the content, right? They're really kind of the platform, the pipeline to deliver the content to the broadest set of people possible. And to me, that makes them a little bit more like a utility. But then you think, oh, well, you know, you, you can't really control what comes through a utility. But then when you think about what our utilities do for us, the electrical, the water, and how they ensure that things are pure and that they continue to work and that we're not harmed by them. And you don't ask questions about that. You expect that to be done. And that's ultimately what social media is trying to do. Now, I will add that it's not quite that pure of an argument. I know that social media makes mistakes, but I do consistently believe that what they're trying to do is just make platforms that everyone can use and not try and direct or steer the conversation. Yeah, it's a bit like what they say about democracy, right? It's a very flawed system, except for the alternative. Uh, I do want to, though, try and get through the other side of things here. Few trust social media to moderate fairly. That, that's what polls tell us. Perhaps that's unfair, but how could this case ensure that there isn't some big brother committee out there censoring all kinds of content? Yeah, well, that's that's the thing. If you throw this into individual states uh, where, where sometimes the one side of the aisles can control, sometimes another side of the aisles can, can control, no one is going to be happy. No one. So one state might be happy for five minutes. The state right next door won't be happy. One contingent will be happy. Another won't be happy. It will be a disaster. And, you know, what one state gets to decide, what does what the Supreme Court decides here and who they weigh this with, say they give control to Florida, something like that, that really is going to speak to the entire country because social media can't kind of make a location by location rule. They, they struggle with that. I'll give you an example. You know, when technology companies get rules from the EU about what they have to do, you notice how they kind of wash back into the US. So it tends to be kind of a blanket approach. And I just think that there's no good way of doing this. And it's not really what we want because it's probably ultimately going to be the opposite of free speech. So uh, a lot to think about there. Uh, we'll get hopefully some kind of decision in the coming weeks, if not months. Uh, Lance Linoff, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Now, you are up to the, your up to the minute uh, weather forecast is coming up. Plus, Microsoft's new push to jumpstart AI growth around the world. We'll hear from Microsoft President Brad Smith about an important new partnership. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. 
Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome back to First Move and a good Tuesday morning if you are just waking up with us in Asia. In today's Money Move, a bit of Monday malaise on Wall Street with the Dow and the S&P falling from record highs. It was Amazon's first day as a member of the Dow Industrials, and it did nothing, though, to boost the blue chip average. One stock outperformer Monday was the Danish firm Zeeland Pharmaceuticals, which soared more than 35 percent in European trading. Drug trial data suggests its treatment for liver disease could also be effective for weight loss. Meantime, in Asia, Japanese stocks climbed further into record territory on Monday, while Chinese stocks pulled back for the first time in over a week now. The president of Microsoft says it's taking important steps to support AI development in Europe as uh, Microsoft announces a new partnership with Mistral AI. Brad Smith says the French company is the leading AI developer in France, and the deal will allow the two companies to collaborate on new language models. Smith told CNN's Anna Stewart about the deal at the Mobile World Congress in Barcelona. Have a listen. I really think this is one of the most important days for Microsoft support for technology development in Europe. Because Mistral AI is far and away the leading AI developer in France. They're important for all of Europe. And what Microsoft, what we just announced, is a multi-year partnership. It will give Mistral AI the ability to train and deploy its advanced models in the AI data centers that we are building. It will give Mistral AI the ability through our models as a service to reach AI developers directly. It means that Microsoft is now supporting more than 1,500 open source models on our infrastructure. And it means that Mistral AI and Microsoft will collaborate together to explore research and development opportunities perhaps especially to fine-tune models to meet the needs of the public sector in Europe. We appreciate that there are some in Europe that want to use AI that's developed in Europe. I mean, you're invested in so many different big foundation models now and companies. Do you have a favorite? (laughs) Not that I will talk about on television. (laughs) But I will say, look, our our partnership with OpenAI is what got us in to the... AI, I'll just say, into the AI era the way we have. And that remains just a a partnership that's vital to us. It's all about this new AI era. Fundamentally, a new sector of the economy is being born. We think of it as the AI economy. It does start with the chips, say, with NVIDIA, but it requires electricity and connectivity. Companies like OpenAI and Mistral AI building models, other companies creating applications, It all relies in part on this enormous AI supercomputing infrastructure that we are building and is, as you noted, very expensive. I thought it was interesting that the NVIDIA CEO recently said that countries should have their own sovereign AI system, that they should build it themselves. What do you think? I think that there's room for lots of different solutions. 
And I think that some countries may want to invest in their own data centers for, say, certain parts of the economy and maybe for certain workloads or maybe to support academic research. They may want their own sovereign AI systems. They may want their own sovereign AI chips. But ultimately, this kind of technology probably benefits and moves forward best when the market goes to work, especially when you can unlock the economies of scale on a global basis. Microsoft is spending more money this year than any government on the planet by far to build out AI data center infrastructure. In a sense, we're doing what no one did in the, for the age of electricity, building this everywhere. And I think the key is that that is what will most bring AI to everyone the fastest. A chilly week ahead for some of our friends in East Asia, snow advisories for Japan and heavy rain across parts of southern China. But hopefully there are some sunnier skies ahead. Chad Myers joins us now for all of that. Chad, really good to see you. And I do hope you can provide some, you know, sunny skies. Yeah, I can't cover this entire map up with clouds. There has to be some sun every once in a while. Uh, we're watching a fairly big storm system, though, for northern Japan, even making wind as far south as Tokyo. And then an ocean effect or sea effect snow event for like Nagano on the western side of Tokyo, way west of Tokyo. But there certainly will still be some snow, some spots between 20 and 30 centimeters of snow coming down and advisories have been posted here. On the back side of this storm is the cold air that's going to come across from Vladivostok and make all the snow on the western slopes here. This is the typical snow belt. This is not that unusual and they'll take the snow because there are ski resorts there that will use all of that snow to uh, entice its customers. 20 to 30 centimeters of snow here on those western slopes. So yes, there are some areas of sunshine and there are some areas that will actually get well above normal, maybe even five to six degrees above normal, but not so much for Seoul today. Still a cloudy day in Seoul, Pyongyang the same right around nine degrees. The warm air begins to come up from the south. Hong Kong, you're already in the 20s and it's going to be warmer by Friday and Saturday. So yes, a couple of nice days there. The cold air does stay pretty far up to the north. But watch this warmer air start to sneak in here and even into parts of China where temperatures will be nearly 20 when you should be five. So yes, take the warm air while you can get it. Shanghai, you warm all the way to 14 by the middle of next week. And Tokyo, kind of an up and down process here, but 14 will be your high on Friday. There'll be some showers. Notice nothing close to a snow event for Tokyo. That's all well into the mountains. Paula. But they'll take it. We know in Japan, those skiers <laughs> will take it. Chad, good to see you. Really appreciate it. You. Now, after the break, one of the world's biggest cities is staring down a water crisis with some experts warning Mexico City's taps could run dry as soon as this summer. And welcome back to First Move. I'm Paula Newton. Here's a look at our headlines this hour. Farmers took to the streets in Brussels today, blocking roads with hundreds of tractors. European agricultural ministers are meeting in the city for crisis talks. For weeks now, farmers have been protesting EU environmental measures, calling them misguided. The agricultural industry has also criticized free trade policies, saying growers are facing unfair competition. Nikki Haley's campaign in jeopardy after she lost the GOP primary in her home state of South Carolina. Former President Donald Trump beat Haley by a wide margin, 60 to 40 percent. Haley was a two-time governor of South Carolina and winning the state was seen as a key test of her candidacy. 
Japan's moon sniper has come back to life. Get this, the country's space agency says after falling asleep, the lunar lander woke up 10 days later and started sending new images back to Earth. It's a big surprise for the electronics still working. The lander wasn't designed to survive in these kinds of extreme temperatures. Last month, Japan became the fifth country to ever land a spacecraft on the moon. So running out of water, that's the reality for huge, huge swaths of Mexico City, home to 22 million people. Mexico City might have been built on a lake, but after years of drought, some experts are now warning it could be a matter of months, just months before it runs dry. Gustavo Valdez has our story. Lorena Cruz knows she's breaking the law every time she pulls water from this underground reservoir. She says it is a miracle the city tank has water, and without it, the whole neighborhood would suffer because they've had no running water for over a month. And the city, she says, still wants them to pay for the service. Lorena and her neighbors are not the only ones struggling to find water for their basic needs. All 21 million residents in Mexico City's metropolitan area are experiencing shortages, in part because of a severe drought. Mexico's capital gets its water from two sources, a system of reservoirs known as Kutsamala and underground aquifers. Raúl Rodríguez Márquez, director of the Consejo Consultivo del Agua, a civic organization promoting water conservation, says the reservoirs are at historic low levels, well below 40% capacity, and the aquifers are overextracted. Part of the problem has been drier than normal rain season that typically run from May to August. And experts say the situation can worsen for the city built over a lake bed before the Spaniards arrived five centuries ago. Some experts warn the city could run out of water this summer on what it's been called day zero. Mexico's president Andrés Manuel López Obrador dismissed those claims, calling them an attempt from the opposition to influence the presidential election in June, and said his government is working to get more water to the city. The city's mayor assured residents that the water supply is guaranteed. But frustrated residents have taken to the streets in protest, and many neighborhoods depend on water delivered by trucks. Some paid by the government, many paid by local residents. Hasta dos mil pesos cada pipa. Maria Herminia Collins says each truck costs about $200, and it's just enough for 20 days of water for a handful of families, if they use it wisely and recycle, like using water from washing dishes, to flush toilets. But the lack of rain is not the only reason experts say Mexico City is suffering from water shortages. A study by Universidad Autónoma de México shows that 40% of the water supply is lost due to leaks, some because of breakage of pipes during the frequent earthquakes, some because the city still relies on pipes over a hundred years old. Rodríguez Márquez says that instead of investing to improve the infrastructure, the money spent on water projects has decreased for many years. 
We contacted CONAWA, Mexico's National Water Management Agency, and they declined our request for an interview. They also declined to answer the written questions we submitted about the water supply levels and the state of the infrastructure. For now, the government will continue to ration distribution and continues to call on its citizens to conserve the precious liquid, forcing residents to patiently wait for water to come their way or get what they need, whatever they can. Gustavo Valdez, CNN, Atlanta. Coming up for us, the great Hong Kong identity crisis. Julia Chatterley speaks to one of the city's leading business figures about jumpstarting growth and navigating the tricky one country, two systems relationship with China. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. It's long branded itself as Asia's world city, but Hong Kong's reputation as a free and open place to live and do business has taken a hit in recent years as Beijing exerts a growing influence. Now, the challenges facing this still vibrant cosmopolitan city are many. They include a brain drain of Western talent, a slow post-COVID recovery, and the draconian national security law pushed through at China's insistence in 2020. Controversial new security laws for the city are now in the works as well. Now, despite the uncertainty, Hong Kong hopes to remain an important player as a bridge between mainland China and the rest of the global community. Hong Kong business leaders are also keenly aware that bold new ideas are needed to shake off what they fear has become a damaging complacency in the city. Julia Chatterley spoke last week to Bernard Chan, a Hong Kong businessman and chairman of the Our Hong Kong Foundation, about the way forward. Listen. Stephen Roach, the former Asia head of Morgan Stanley, said recently, Hong Kong is over. Quote, you're here. Is Hong Kong over? I'm here. I'm an optimist, uh, but it's not quite uh, entirely true, those comments he made. Uh, he talked about three main things. He talked about three things. Uh, he talks about we've probably been too dependent on China. Is right. this true? I mean, because China has amazing growth in the last 20, 30 years. So Hong Kong benefited from it. They rode that wave. Yes. So, of course, now he has a bit of a downturn. So, of course, our, our stock markets, our, our sentiments also have been affected by them today. Of course, then the other factor is the geopolitical tension between China and the U.S., and truly that has an impact on Hong Kong as well. But the last comment he made about Hong Kong, and it's factually wrong, about Hong Kong's future as the one country, two system, the separate system from China, ended, and that's just entirely wrong. In fact, uh, President Xi came to Hong Kong in 2022, and he reaffirmed that this separate system from the Chinese will continue, in a way, indefinitely. But he also emphasized on the legal system. The separate system mainly is the totally different separate legal system, different currency from the Chinese uh, the, the currency. So those will remain intact. So I think you know he's factually wrong that the, the so-called two system ended after the draconian law imposed in Hong Kong in 2019. Okay, so this is the key, and, and I think you've gone straight to the heart of it. 
Um, nobody believes that China's a sort of passive big brother that it was in the past. And this simplification of what is complicated, I think, politics is that the Hong Kong is not separated now in the mainland, whether it's for citizens that I've spoken to here, whether it's business leaders too from around the world. They're lumping them together and assuming that that two systems no longer exists. How do you ensure them that the rule of law here, Hong Kong's rule of law, still applies? Well, first of all, Chinese leaders in Beijing want that system to remain. Why? Well, that's the key because why would they want another you know, city like uh, Shanghai or Shenzhen? They want Hong Kong the special status because we, this is the gateway for them to the world. So they want this, the entire different legal system, the currency intact, so it helps them. So the one so-called one country, two system is not just good for Hong Kong, it's actually good for China. So Chinese leaders in the last two years have repeatedly reminded us that Hong Kong should stay international. However, we are one country. We are under one country. So, so there's no illusion that we are a separate, you know, autonomous in a way, region. What that's important. Okay, that's important. So should we be talking about carving out Hong Kong within China and what it represents? Well, I think this whole idea of the one country, two system is not easy to understand. Not, not for the international audience, even for our local Hong Kong people. For the young people here. I don't think they understand really what that means Indeed. too. This like, is, do they understand China? Exactly, because we all, including myself, we're right. all being go, you know, brought up in Hong Kong. It's an entire different system. But the fact of the matter is, China with 1.3 billion people, 400 million rising middle class, we need to understand, not just Hong Kong, the whole world need to understand the needs of that 400 million rising middle class. So we are not brought up in such a way. So this is a challenge for Hong Kong people, we need, especially our youth, to understand that you may not have to agree with that system, but you need to understand what are the demands and the desire of that rising middle class in China. What does China ultimately want then from Hong Kong in an ideal situation? What allows Hong Kong to exist in the way that it did before? To your point about some, whether it was illusion or otherwise, that, that China's there, but it is that passive big brother, because maybe this is not just a Hong Kong problem, it's a Chinese authority problem too, and how they message what Hong Kong yeah. means to them today. Would you agree with that? Well, I agree. So Hong national Kong has, security laws are... Well, national security laws, because we, in 2019, we went way too far. Yes, right? okay, you agree. We, we the sought, pendulum swung way too far. We challenged the sovereignty of China over Hong Kong, and that's a total no-no. You know, we are part of China. No doubt about that. But doesn't mean that we have to, and China allows Hong Kong to be different, but we are part of China. That's important. I was talking about the sort of response actually to what happened there being this pendulum has swung too far. Do you agree with that too? I do agree. And I think we are in a bit of a soul searching today yeah. to try to find a new identity for Hong Kong. Partly not just because of the, the new law, but I think more, more importantly is are we still relevant? Are we yeah. still remain competitive? So two issues here, and now you look at Shenzhen, our next door neighbor, you know, they, they, the Shenzhen I know when I grew up is entirely very different from today. So yes, they are a competitor, but they also can be very complementary to Hong Kong. I've spoken to a lot of Hong Kongers here since I've arrived that they go to Shenzhen. And I was sort of looking at the economics and actually I believe the economy of Shenzhen now is, is bigger than Hong Kong. That is big competition. Yes. yes. And because our cost of living is too high, right. so things are way more affordable in the mainland. So I think what Hong Kong needs to do, because we have been having such a good 20, 30 years of good run, we now need to, I mean, I, we are facing a crisis today, but, yeah. it's, but Hong Kong have gone through many crises in the past, and we always manage to rebound. 
And so what needs to do today is that we have to readjust ourselves and we have to stay relevant and find our new competitive edge. And we do. Yeah, we were still going to be remain as a major aviation hub in, in the region. And now we have a very new emerged uh, arts and culture hub, right? And together with financial centers. So I think we can still remain very uh, competitive in the region. And the key thing is how can we continue to serve the Chinese uh, market? Right. That's the key, right? That with the four, rising 400 million middle class, their needs are very different. There are some needs that they will get it from onshore in the mainland, but there are needs that they would want to come out offshore. And young mainlanders are coming here in particular Absolutely. too, aren't they? And I think that's an important sort of piece of the jigsaw puzzle that people need to understand. They need it's a train journey. Exactly, because they need choices. There are choices that they can get onshore, there are choices they want to get offshore, not just Hong Kong, but also throughout the region. So the whole region actually benefited from China's economic growth. Okay, coming up for us, an eight-year-old prodigy stunned the chess world and a grandmaster this month when he broke a record. Our chat with him after the break. So imagine being outsmarted by an eight-year-old. Well, that's the reality for one unlucky chess player. About a week ago, Ashwath Kaushik from Singapore became the youngest player ever to beat a chess grandmaster during a classical game. Julia Chatterley caught up with Ashwath and his mom, Rohini. It feels amazing to beat my first grandmaster on the board, which was classical. And uh, I'm proud of my game and how I played. And he blundered a tactic and then I found the tactic quickly and then won the rook and then quickly won the game. <laughs> so, wait, you have to take me back. When you sat down, when you first started the game, did you look at him and think, I can beat him? Or did you have, like, butterflies in your stomach? When I sat down, I knew I could beat him. Wow. You know, you have some confidence. Mum, how did you feel when you watched your son sit down to play this chess game. Did you also have the same feeling or were you actually quite nervous for him? Oh, I'm always nervous when he plays. Um, I, I always have confidence in him. I think I appreciate the fact that he goes into every game confident in his ability to play well and potentially uh, win against his opponent, whoever it may be. Uh, but for me, waiting outside the hall, it's always a little bit nerve-wracking. <laughs> I think it'll be a lot nerve-wracking as a mum watching you. Um, Ashwath, talk to me about how much you practice. Because I know you started playing chess when you were just a little bit older than four years old. And now you practice, I think, two hours every day. And how much do you practice at weekends? On weekends, I practice seven to eight hours, about. Wow! Yeah, I would just say that most of the time he's very self-driven. And we also try and strike a little bit of a balance. So when he does want to take a bit of a break, we do try to find some time that he can relax with some other activities. Uh, but most of the time, he's quite happy playing chess. What do you want to be when you grow up? Are you still thinking about it? Or do you want to be a chess master yourself? I want to be a world champion when I grow up. I. I firmly believe it. Do you promise when you become a world champion to come and talk to me again and tell me how it feels? Yes. Uh -huh. yes I that's a promise. 
Mum, you heard that. I'll see I you on the, our first move. The moment you become a world champion. I know. How long is that going to take you, Ashworth? I don't know. Maybe a little bit like 16, 15 or 20. I bet it's before then. We'll see. Thank you both for coming on the show. Congratulations to you both. And Ashworth, keep teaching your younger brother because I hear he's pretty good at chess too. Thank you for joining us on the show. And finally on first move, going at breakneck speed with no driver in sight. Railway officials in India are investigating a runaway freight train that rolled for more than one and a half hours before finally being stopped. Now, officials say at one point it hit a speed of 45 miles per hour. It was finally stopped after crews were able to place stones on the track and use emergency brakes. Not exactly high tech, but look, it worked. Luckily, no one was injured. Authorities say it happened after the pilot and assistant got off and were unable to get back on. And that wraps up the show for us. Thanks for joining us. I'll see you here tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.